Hey guys, welcome to another exciting episode of Radical Rocks. We've got a lot of exciting topics today. A lot of dinosaurs, mysterious Martian stones from Utah, and so much more. On the first part of the journey, I was looking at radical rocks. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things. There were sand, hills, and rings. First thing I found was a geocrystals, quartz with no clouds. Agate was hot and the ground was hard, but the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock with no name. Felt good to have in my hand. In the desert, you can find lots of rocks. Cause radical rocks are everywhere. Oh yes, radical rocks are everywhere, guys, and today is maybe an exception. We are going to have probably a little bit shorter of episode today, and uh, we will talk about the Calvary hobbyists that are polishing, polishing fossils and making jewelry out of rocks. We've got the Australian Thunderbird. We've got those mysterious Martian stones from Utah, ancient trees, history of the x-ray, and we're also going to talk about Jasper and maybe even more. So let's get right into it, guys. Um, thank you for supporting our social media. We are on Facebook, MeWe. We are on uh, Parlor, and we are on YouTube. We have videos, totally different content there. And we have a blog at Blogspot. All you got to do is look up Radical Rocks, and we're going to show up on rocks. Every time I do a search, we're the first ones on the topic of rocks that show up. So it should be easy to find. We appreciate your support. We are almost at 1,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel, so it helps if you subscribe, comment, like, all that good stuff. It helps us out, helps us spread the word and help keep rock hounding alive. All right, guys, so our first conversation for today, um, we're gonna talk a lot about Jasper, which I know is a big hit, but let's talk about a fossil site that reveals an ancient sinkhole and an enormous occupant. Now, this was in Tennessee, and you can read about this at the um, ARS Technica it's A-R-S-T-E-C-H-N-I-C-A dot com under the article of that name by Janine Timmons. She tells us about this giant mastodon. It's just enormous mastodon that was found. They've got the uh, lower jaw that they're rebuilding right now. And this was just a road cut uh, there in Tennessee. And it turns out that there's quite a bit of stuff there, quite a bit of excitement going on. This is going on. Uh, they're taking the pieces down to the museum. It's taken five years so far. They have uh, said that it's the remains of this mastodon is, they have the removing of it, the recovery of it is complete, but now they're slowly putting it together. It's no secret. There's pictures and stuff on social media from the very beginning. Um, out of the gray, the gray fossil site near Gray, Tennessee, which was found by accident during a road cut in the year 2000. And local people who recognize the importance of the site 
they went ahead and they halted the construction um, and they've cataloged over a thousand specimens so far. They found uh, what looks like a tapir, which is a relative of elephant, a frog, a snake, and other things. Uh, volunteers, they've got tons of volunteers, said over 10,000 specimens here. So 1,000 specimens per year, 10,000 for 10 times as many fossils over the last 10 years. Over uh, five, uh, they feel the sinkhole is over 5 million years old. That's yeah, hard to prove. Uh, preserved a wealth of fossils, vertebrates, plants, 100 species up to date with a distinct eco, uh, ecosystem or ecosystem. And this is, uh, they're just starting to get into this. Pretty cool. Um, it is like no others, they said. Um, they said the mastodon skull is uh, much bigger than ones that they usually find. Um, there's differences here from the North American uh, ones, which are usually very fragment, fragmented, kind of shattered, and uh, they have to uh, work very hard to get them put back together again, and they have to fill in kind of the blanks with, uh, and you can see the pictures, they fill in the blanks to try to guess, you know, where exactly each fragment would have been based on other skulls that they have. They can do a pretty good job. Of doing that and uh, have a high level of accuracy in assembling these bones. They said uh, modern preservation is very, very important. Um, the gray site it feels that they have uh, comply. They have compiled over thirty thousand survey points in a database. So it looks like this is going to be a long-term dig site. I don't know what happened to the construction. Hopefully, they were able to. Uh, move around and, um, and and continue their construction nearby or something. I don't know. Or at least dig all the bones out that they could and then continue their construction. So but it's good to get this stuff and uh, learn from what the ground has shown us and, and saved for us in this, what they call a slow motion teleporter. The article's quite lengthy. If you want a lot more uh, detail on the bones and the rocks and the museum and the process of uh, getting this information and the preservation and all that. There's a lot more information here. They've got a beautiful picture of the mastodon there and also it looks like the tapir is down below, much smaller but uh, still quite impressive. Now, next, what about the x-ray? Have you ever thought about the x-ray machine? Probably not. Um, we just go now, we get a scan, we get an x-ray, whatever. X-ray's been around a long time. The epictimes.com, Peter Weiss tells us about the sometimes strange history of the x-ray. And what I enjoyed about this article is that the x-ray, it was discovered in Germany about 1895, a long time ago. Um, a gentleman there, a scientist, was experimenting, uh, experimenting with cathode rays. He used a cathode tube, covered it with heavy uh, black cloth, and he found out that an incandescent green light projected into a nearby fluorescent screen. And this discovery was x-rays. And due to the fact he had no idea what these rays were, it was an unknown phenomenon but uh, they kept playing with this and continuing this experiment 
He took a photograph of his wife's hand and it revealed her bones. Well, because of this, uh, Rotengen, I'm probably saying it wrong, it's R-O-N-T-G-E-N, and there's a, a special pronunciation to this, but uh, he won a Nobel Prize in 1901. Early use of the x-ray became uh, widespread and through the 30s and the 40s. Um, shoe stores offered free x-rays of your feet so customer could see the toes on their feet and uh, you know it was not really understood what could go you know what might be healthy or unhealthy they just knew they could see the bones this is cool check it out let's play with it but uh, soon after the x-rays were invented uh, a French scientist found another source of penetrating rays by using a mineral that he found to be naturally, um, I had this word down, pho, phos, phosphor, phosphorescent. Phosphorescent minerals that he worked with was uranium. Um, so this Curie and her husband Pierce, or P Pierre, were intrigued by this discovery from uh, this other gentleman, and they discovered another similar mineral and named it Pol polonium after her native in Poland and then they worked on another mineral radium both polonium and radium were more radioactive than uranium so here they are playing with these things and they promoted the use of radium to alleviate suffering from many ailments her and her husband shared a Nobel Prize for uh, in 2003, they shared shared it with the other gentleman who discovered it. No one knew the serious consequences of all this radioactive exposure at that time, um, which was kind of gradual and mild. But in time, exposure to radioactivity um, was found uh, to be instrumental in treating cancer. Um, and... Uh, that, that can uh, dissolve lumps and also can help nervous diseases. So there's all kinds of minerals and stuff that have been used in medicine and in looking into our body or treating inside our body with these interesting um, techniques and metals. And also another interesting story was of radium salts where the developer claimed providing curative properties to those who ingested it now you know that's bad that was in 1932 um, they ingested people ingested large quantities from 1927 to 1930 so you got to be careful um, you can't just jump on the bandwagon and stuff because someone says it's healthy and then in 1950s uranium sand houses were popular in new mexico colorado and utah patients would sit around on the floor that was made of mildly radioactive uh, sand, and the spas were started as early as uh, 1906 in the Czech Republic that had guests bathed in radon-infused water. Some of these spas still exist today. Um, <laughs> I don't know, that doesn't sound too good. Uh, radio Radiation spas are still in existence today. Hey, coffee's done. Did you hear that beep? That's my coffee. Um, that can be done in Germany, radioactive spas, wow. Uh, there's low levels of radon, which is a radioactive gas, which is formed by the decay of uranium, typically in like granite. The belief is bathing in this treated water can help ailments such as rheumatism. Um, 
some sorts of anemia um, killed Marie Curie died in 1934 from a plastic anemia most likely caused by her excessive radiation exposure from her work with radium. All her notebooks are still sealed in a lead box in France due to their radioactivity. Yike. So good stuff came out of it, but, you know, people who didn't know what they were dealing with, um, they suffered to find out things for us. But the x-ray is certainly very interesting, and um, there's a very minimal amount of... uh, of uh, radiation exposure from an x-ray but there is some so it's something to think out of to think about um so that is it strange history of the x-ray now there was some fossilized tree discovered in ns uh cliff on display at the royal ontario museum you can read about this at cbc.ca nova scotia is the area uh, Moria Donovan is credited to writing this article, but if you want to go there and check out these pictures, it almost looks like a saguaro cactus to me, um, the way the trunk of this tree looks. But if you think about the fossils uh, and the dinosaur books, if, you've, if you're older, you remember the dinosaur books would be illustrated, and there would be these weird trees with these curly leaves and stuff. Very weird, ones we don't see anymore today, um, although there's some relatives of those trees that were quite big and tall. And these feel that these are uh, the trunks of these earliest trees that uh, go back uh, to the beginning of time, according to these scientists. The Dawn of Life Gallery opened this month at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, bringing together a unique collection of fossils from the UNESCO World Heritage Site across the country. One of those fossils is an irregular column discovered in the fossil cliffs at Joggins, Nova Scotia, a fossilized tree that goes back to the Cambriophysis era on the cliffs that now lie in the Bay of Fundy, where it was a, uh, was a swamp at the heart of, a super, of the supercontinent Pangaea they feel. So you can check out these stumps and trees and the history and uh, how they try to put this puzzle together. And they have a big picture of a centipede wandering through this time when the air was highly oxygenated and um, the whole earth apparently was much like a greenhouse according to the fossil record and um, many ancient books such as the Bible also talk about the earth being like a hothouse. So this this is uh, verified with these uh, trees, according to science. Of course, uh, there's always, always open to debate on uh, what they found and what it means, but pretty interesting. I'd never seen a fossil like that before. China buys a lithium mine in Zimbabwe for uh, half a billion dollars. This is at... Uh, uh, Reuters, uh, they're the ones credited with it. You can find it at zimlive.com, and uh, they tell you all about this. Uh, China is out to control the uh, lithium uh, because of the batteries. They see the money that's going to go into that from uh, America and uh, other, uh, you know, New World countries or 
more affluent countries, Europe, Europe and America and such, going to be dumping a ton of money into this. So China is making sure they can control as much of this as possible. And it uh, looks like they are going to be buying this uh, huge supply of, uh, of lithium, according to this article. Now, the rare, mysterious, well, maybe not so rare, but they're mysterious Martian stones from Utah. Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. M-O-Q-U-I. Moki, maybe? I don't know. But they also have other names. These round marbles that are brown, they're very hard. Um, if you've been to Jim and Lapidary shows or maybe you've been to some Jim uh, uh, sto- stores and seen these plain, ugly, uh, black to dark brown rocks that uh, are of no particular beauty, but they're interesting because of their shape and the hardness. They're also known as Navajo berries, um, shaman stones, and they're called concretions by geologists. They're actually composed of sandstone that has been cemented together with uh, hematite in this case, which is an oxide from iron, and they are surrounded by a hard shell of iron oxide minerals. Um, they're very heavy, um, These this particular type of concretion. It was written by Jin, according to this. I just noticed her name. Um, she's credited with this. But she says uh, the word mo mo ki, kiu or whatever it is qui mo qui has a certain magical sound to it in the first place and comes from the hopi tribe it means the dead in the hopi language the hopi tribe itself is known as the mo Queek indians named by early early spanish uh, conquerors and fortunately their name was originally changed to hopi in the early 1900s so demonstrate and represent their real name. So they would uh, play marble games with these iron balls uh, uh, at night, every night, or at, sometimes at night. Uh, and they said that the, the spirits would return at night and play marbles with these iron balls. So in the mornings, the spirits leave the marbles behind as assurance to the relatives that they're going to be doing fine in the afterlife. And, of course, the wind and such would uh, move these around as they would uh, concrete and get bigger or whatever. Now, how old are these things? Um, it's hard to say. Um, whoops. Uh, also, I wanted to mention one more thing here. So let's get down there. They are um, Mars blueberries are a similar formation they were discovered on Mars by Opportunity Rover in 2005. The difference, however, is the Utah stones are mostly sandstone, and the Martian stones are pure iron oxide, also known as rust. They're additionally an indication that there may have once been water on Mars, which means there may have been life on Mars as well, so says the article. Um, maybe. You never know. They've got one broken half, and you can see the sandstone, and it's really interesting. It has like a hard shell over it. So, um, yeah, they feel that these are millions and millions of years old. You can find them in Utah, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, and New Mexico um, because of the flakes of iron-rich minerals below the surrounding area. It builds up over the sand and um, the quartz, sand made of quartz, and they become fused, 
and uh, gives it a really amazing texture. The shamans and the stones uh, have a history of healing. Cultures in the past claim that these uh, marbles have properties and can protect you from false friends, fires, floods, enhance fertility for all you people who want more kids. <laughs> and according to New Age Specialists, Mars blueberries in the Mo key marbles are very similar. They're apparently a way to connect with extraterrestrials. So if you want to talk to E.T., I guess put these up to your head. Where to find them? Um, yeah, you have to go to a place where it's legal to remove them. It says it's illegal to remove them from the uh, Moquique Park. So I guess there's a park there. And then the Navajo sandstones in Arizona and Utah's public lands, they they sit eroding from spectacular white cliffs on Zion's National Park as well. But it says you cannot collect them. Um, it's illegal and not cool. So I guess you'll have to just buy them if you want them. Um, maybe there's somebody that has some land around there that where you could collect them to look them up. But you can't collect them in a lot of these spots, but you can go look at them. Rare Thunderbird fossil gives researchers a clue to the demise of Australian species of megafonda at theguardian.com. You can find out all about this. Um, the Flinders University have found what they believe is the reason for the extinction of Australia's massive Thunderbirds. Um, that was a infection. We talked about it a while ago, so this is kind of a repeat, I guess. Um, they found out that uh, this particular bird that they had there is five to six times as big or in weight as an emu and up to two meters tall. And uh, some of these became stuck in treacherous mud of lake water, and they feel that's how these birds might have died. And uh, they had a painful disease, which is maybe why they couldn't get out of the mud this uh, infection that they had affected the chest, the legs, and the feet, and they could see this on the bones. It weakened them and made it hard for them to survive. Um, so now they feel, because they saw this on these bones, in several of these abnormal growths and cavities in the fossil remains, that this is what could have led to their extinction. Um, so very interesting. You can read more about this if you want to find out... Uh, all the little details about how they say, well, it could have been a drought, it could have been this, it could have been that. Now, these Calvary hobbyists polish fossils and make jewelries out of rocks. And uh, luckily, their numbers are doubling. So some of the rock hounding folks out there, actually, their groups are getting bigger, their membership is getting stronger. And um, Dan McGarvey tells us all about it at cbc.ca. Um, he tells us about this group out in Calvary, and they've got a lot of great pictures. Um, some of the members here have have been there for a long time, back to the 70s. The club started in 1959. They're very close to uh, uh, Alberta's being so close to the Rocky Mountains, which is great for fossil hunting and treasure hunting. And uh, a lot of fossils were collected before the 1970s. Um, where, when they could collect, I guess they maybe they can't collect there as much anymore. They need to come over to the few places we have open here, I guess. 
Lapidary involves finding, cutting, polishing rocks and fossils, something Gil has been doing for over 60 years. He says in the mountains he would pick up the rocks, and if he was interested, um, then he would do it. He said that when he was in the grade 7, an older student took him under his wing and showed him the rock saw and uh, taught him how to do that. That was about 1960. Soon he got his own equipment, and now 60 years later, he's still picking up rocks and putting them in his pocket. He makes beautiful, smooth, polished rocks, some as gifts for family and members, some for his wife and daughter. Projects involve rocks that he started polishing decades ago. There's always that one that you just don't get to, right? <laughs> or that or that pile. I have so many projects that are sitting there, and I forget about them as I look through, and I go, oh, I was going to do this for so-and-so. Well, I guess it's too late now. So Gil says it's fascinating when you cut these rocks and you polish them. Um, it's just interesting to pick a piece, whether it be a fossilized piece of wood or a mineral. And uh, a lot of uh, hobbyists have drawn to the activity of some form of lapidary since the pandemic, he says, because uh, they want something to do that they can do at home. Maybe they'll buy a, uh, a multi-unit grinder, polisher, sander, or maybe a, uh, a rock tumbler or something like that, or maybe just get uh, stones that are already made. But a lot of people will just start with a rock tumbler and get tumbled rocks. There's a lot you can do with it. You can make jewelry, necklaces, and rings. Um, they have a workshop there. They have stuff for cutting, polishing. They'll help you out. They've got, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of, of ways to teach people. It's $5 to drop by the club and use the machines once you're a member. They've got pictures here. They've got, uh, looks like they've got several polishing machines and different grits. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Nova, um, Cal Calvary, Calgary has a really great lapidary club there. All right, guys, we're going to get into Jasper. And then uh, let's get to it. Ball Jasper. Have you ever heard of Ball Jasper? This is Jasper that shows concentric red and yellow bands. Um, this Jasper can occur in spherical masses, huge masses. Uh, I'm trying to see if there is some pictures here of it. Um, or locations of where we would find this, you could look that up on mindat.org. It's M-I-N-D-A-T.org and find out more about it. Um, as far as this page, it just says a variety of Jasper does not give a specific location. Let's take a look at the next type is Bayate, B-A-Y-A-T-E. This is a local name for a, br a brown type of jasper, originally described in the in a proverbs uh, a province of Cuba. So this is just a brown type of uh, jasper. I don't see any pictures of it here describing anything uh, in detail of it, but that's another form. Who knew that they had it in Cuba? Uh, another type that they don't really tell about here is catalinite they don't tell us anything about that there's chryso jasper a variety of jasper colored by chrysocolla wow that's going to be a beautiful blue uh, to green going to be very hard very very special type of jasper to 
work with the Chryso Jasper. Now there's also a Creolite Jasper, which is a red and white banded Jasper, uh, originally reported from California, fairly common and uh, found throughout the Midwest and other areas. Dallasite is a variety of Jasper from Vancouver Island, British, uh, British uh, Columbia in Canada. And um, there's not really a description here. Uh, it says green and black. Green and black. Um, not much else information on that, but there's another type of Jasper that you just don't hear about too much is this uh, Dallasite. Now, Darylingite, Darryl, is a local name for a variety of jasper. It's a kind of uh, Lydian stone, originally reported from Victoria, Australia. Um, they don't tell us too much about it here. Uh, when we go look at the rest of the information, they don't have much on the color, but there is, uh, you can find a link to a mine that. Uh, Apparently, this is dug up in uh, Australia. If you want to check that out, that is Derelingite. Egyptian Jasper. This is a brown variety of Jasper. Brown alternating with black stripes. Uh, it is a Egypt. It also could be red, blood red, uh, blood red flush. Uh, red, yellow, brown, found in Baden, originally described from Egypt. Then there's Irinamite, which is a very special multicolor black, blue-brown variety, a local variety of jasper. It is a, a microquartzite associated with manganese ores of the Taken Range, eastern Siberia. Its coloration is caused by black manganese oxides and uh, it can have blue even with the alkaline in it um, Inramite I-R-N-I-M-I-T-E very neat very different Kinradiite is an orbicular jasper with orbs originally observed from San Francisco areas and named for the lapidary um, Kinrade and uh, orbicular jaspers, you can imagine all the different types of jaspers and colors, greens and yellows and browns that there is. Ahi jasper, which we're all familiar with that one, very popular, um, can be in blues and greens and browns. Uh, pastelite, this is a variety of jaspers that has uh, pastel colors. Then there is uh, quitsalizate. Wow, that's a tricky one. This is a translucent emerald green jasper from Guatemala. Um, man, it sounds like it could be kind of a, a quartzite type of, uh, of uh, jade or something because there's a lot of wonderful jade in Guatemala. Let me spell this out for you if you're interested in it. Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L-I-T-Z-T-Z. L-I. Yeah, try to say that 10 times fast. I, I, I couldn't say it one time slow. Um, there's no maps here, but uh, I'm kind of looking into it a little bit more here. But uh, definitely something in Guatemala 
and uh, that would be worth looking into. That sounds pretty cool. Um, Ryband Jasper, which is a banded Jasper. Um, there's another Unreal Jasper right here. Let's see if it tells us what kind of colors this Ryband Jasper is. Okay, I actually have some of this. This is real pretty. Um, this is from Arizona, and you can find it in Navajo County. Um, it has red uh, and light red and yellow. It's banded. There's some orange streaks, many, many streaks of different colors and banding. Um, they're not real straight and you formed, but they're definitely clear enough to see the banding. Some of the blanding, bandings are blended, but uh, this is a beautiful uh, Jasper gemstone. I actually have some of that in my collection. Um, this one, wow. Vogelagen Jaspis. V-O-G-E-L-A-U-G-E-N-J-A-S-P-I-S. Um, let's see if it gives us anything. Nothing in the description. It just says a variety of Jasper. Um, just really nothing on this one. Uh, could be from Australia, possibly. There are some links here. Um, they have a list of dealers. I, yeah, I don't know. It could just be a sales pitch. <laughs> that one might be a sales pitch that snuck in. Watercolor Jaspers, special multicolor, uh, black, Blue, brown, white, local variety of jasper with the micro quartzite associated with manganese ores, uh, again in eastern Siberia. And then Wilkite, which is a yellow, purple, pink, and green jasper from Willow Creek um, in Ada County, Idaho. And Idaho has some beautiful, beautiful jaspers. But I thought we could take a look at uh, some of these unusual jaspers. And when you go to mindat.org, not only can you find out about these jaspers, but you can look up locations where they might be found. And uh, they have a beautiful picture there of some uh, uh, flint red jasper uh, that's common in Arizona. They have some of the orbicular jasper, beautiful red uh, orbs with green uh, clouds and white clouds and uh, olive uh, Beautiful, beautiful Jaspers. You can I can never get enough of the Jaspers, guys. All right, guys, I said this was going to be a short episode, so that is it. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas, and I wish you a Happy New Year, and we'll see if we can get out a podcast next week or not with all the holidays and everything going on. Until then, remember, rock hounds don't die, they petrify. <laughs>